We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning as we're continuing our walk through the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves in chapter 12 this morning, and we're nearly done. Uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks away from Hebrews. Uh, I'll be in Africa, and again, we'll, more on that here in just a little bit. Um, yeah, I'll share this with you. So um, one of the things that I've done since I began preaching and, and preaching ministry before I began pastoring, the first sermon that I ever preached was in uh, 2010. So it was in spring 2010. Throw that image up there of that little notebook paper. This is the sermon notes from my very first sermon. It's a little different now. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot different now. That's very disorganized, and it actually went pretty well. I can't believe it. That wasn't my worst sermon, believe it or not. Uh, but that was the way things started out. But today is my 700th sermon. I keep a tally, uh, and, and I, mean, I just think that's a, cool, uh, it's a cool trophy of God's grace that I kind of I keep that tally around. I just figured I'd share that with you today that uh, hopefully it'll be a decent one because it's a big one for me, 700. So uh, I'm excited to, to teach this, this passage to you guys, and I hope that it's a blessing. You can take that down. Uh, you know, in our culture, and I mean, not even just our culture, but just in general, we as human beings, we're focused on what we can see, right? And so what you can see is above ground it, in lots of other ways we could say that, but at least what we see is that we can't see things that are underground, right? We don't have like x-ray vision to be able to see under the ground. But so much of what impacts your everyday is buried and perhaps never even been seen by your eyes. Things like uh, electric cables. I don't know where all the electric cables run. Maybe you do. Maybe that's your job. But I don't know where they run, and yet they're pretty important to my life. I don't know where all the water and, and sewer pipelines are, but they're pretty important to my above-ground life. The same is true of gas and oil pipelines or your internet maybe. You have a, a, a wire that's dug from your you know, house to a, a cable out, a cable box out by the road or something. You can't see those things, and yet those underground things have a big above-ground impact on your life. You're able to enjoy the ability to flush your toilet and take showers or pump your gas, all those things, because you enjoy those abilities by the roots that enable them, the things that are under the ground. The reason I say that is because there is much to the above-ground Christian life, for the good and for the bad. Things that we see, things like our obedience, the good works that we may do, going to church, reading your Bible, kindness, whatever it may be, those are sort of above ground acts. But also there are bad things that are above ground for us to see. Things like when we are deceptive or violent or a gossip or uh, perhaps we steal something that isn't ours. Those are things that are above the ground that are in the Christian life for us to see. But similar to infrastructure in our society, those above ground actions flow from a system of roots that are right here. The underground, like the, the roots that make those things happen are right here. It's our heart. The test of endurance that we've seen in the book of Hebrews the last several weeks isn't in your legs, it's not in your lungs, it's not in your physical strength. The test of endurance is in the roots, it's in your heart. And so when we look at Hebrews this morning, I want you to remember that idea of the roots being right here that produce your above ground life. Hebrews 12, we're going to look at four verses this morning, verses 14 through 17, all right? Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, and this is what God's Word says. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." 
Again, the context here is the race of endurance. This letter is winding down, and so there's only a couple of chapters left, and so we're really nearing the end of this thing. But in the last part of this letter, while most of it has been very doctrinally heavy, a lot of things about what he's teaching, here in these last few parts, he's really applying the things that he's been teaching for several chapters. And so this is an example of that. And last week, we looked at part of that too. Remember, we talked about uh, lift your drooping hands in the verses just prior. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. It's the author's way of saying you're going to experience because you're a Christian and you're being faithful, you're going to experience spiritual exhaustion, spiritual weariness. And so the natural progression in verse 14 is then to say, strive, like, like keep going. That's the very first word in verse 14, strive, keep going forward. And that striving that we're going to see this morning is not based on what we're made of on the outside, our flesh, our muscles, our lung capacity, but it's based on the contents of our hearts. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at sort of three different root systems. The first one is our pursuit, which is to be rooted in holiness. Our pursuit, which is to be rooted in holiness. That word holiness may sound like a real Christianese word, maybe just one that's like soaking with a religious context, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. The word holy literally just means set apart, to be to set apart as, as different. And so we, we as Christians certainly are to live holy lives because we're to live set apart from the world and differently from the world because we've been plucked out of the world by Jesus. We are made holy. In other words, God, when he saves us, he says, you're mine, and so you are literally, you, you may be in the world, but you're not of the world, and so you are holy because I've made you holy. You're a saved person. We identify, by the way, through baptism and say, the world isn't doing this. I'm identifying to be set apart from the world. But we're not just made holy. We're constantly being made holy as Christians. That Every day in our lives, we're a work in progress. The word for that is sanctification. It's God being, doing a work in us and one day completing that work when we go to be with him in glory. And so the reason I say that is that we are made holy and called to live as holy. That our holy standing should produce holy living. And this is the gist of verse 14 where he says, Strive then for peace with everyone. This is a manifestation of that holy living. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, when he says holiness without which no one can see the Lord, he's not saying sinlessness. No one in this room is sinless. And yet there are many people in this room that are Christians, that are Christ followers, that will be with Jesus in glory one day. And so when he says strive for holiness, he's not saying you're going to be sinless. What he's saying is, I want you to be the type of people who continue to seek and pursue the Lord. To seek and continue to pursue what it means to be obedient. This context, these people that are receiving the letter of Hebrews, they were opposed, they were mocked by the culture. And that should sound a little familiar because of the culture that we live in. We are called to be holy apart from the world, and the world was in return mock us and scorn us, slander us, oppose us. The author of Hebrews is saying, by the way, notice in verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone. He doesn't say achieve peace with everyone. Yeah, good luck with that, right? You, you can't. You can't achieve peace with everyone, especially not a, a world that is militantly opposed to Jesus. He doesn't say achieve peace with everyone. He says to strive for it, pursue it. The word for peace in this context of two people be to reconcile, and it takes two to tango, right? It takes two to be reconciled to one another, but it only takes one person to forgive. In our hearts, we can, as best as we can, live at peace with all people. That's why it says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, 
Notice that phrase, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's us, right? We're to strive for peace and purity, which would be a synonym for holiness. To strive for peace and purity. In other words, we aren't saved to passively coast in this life and say, hey, I got the get out of hell free card, and I'm just like, I'm good. I mean, God is, he's, he's signed the check, and so I'm, I'm cleared. I'm just going to live however I want to. And what this passage is saying is, if that's your go-to agenda, then you're not his. Not because you're going to lose your salvation, but it's saying that anyone that truly belongs to Jesus will produce the fruit of a holy life. So Jesus said, abide in me. Apart from you, you can do, uh, me, you can do nothing. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you will never bear fruit, but in me, you'll bear much fruit. You will. It's a guarantee. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, is to strive for peace and purity, not to passively coast in this life. And so he gives them a warning. This is the opposite of passive living. I mean, that verb is pretty intense. Strive, try, press on. It's easy to avoid making peace with somebody. You say, well, listen, I'll, I'm willing to be reconciled to her when she apologizes to me first. That's so easy. It's easy to be lazy and disobedient. It's easy to not pursue purity. It's easy to not create boundaries and say, no, I know that I struggle with this pattern of sin, and I'm going to cut it off at its source. It's easy to not do that. But we're not called to what's easy. We're called to be holy. And because we've already hit on this a lot in this letter, I'm actually not going to dwell here anymore because there's a whole lot more than I want to see in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 15. The first part says, see to it, notice those three words, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's not talking about salvation here. Uh, He's talking about the ongoing manifestations of walking with Jesus. So in other words, he's saying the ongoing grace of God in the lives of Christians. See to it that no one fails to receive the preaching of the word, do the spiritual discipline. See to it that no one falls away and walks away. If you read it backwards, what the author of Hebrews is saying is there is a temptation or a tendency to drift. And we've seen this many times already in this letter. So again, I'm not going to bog down here. But all of us struggle with the tendency, if we do nothing— like being on a raft in a river. If you do nothing, what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself way downstream. Do nothing. Be passive and see where this life gets you. Apart from the Lord. Way, way, way downstream. We're to strive against it and swim upstream. That's why he says, see to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No, it says no one. There's a corporate responsibility here. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, watch over one another in all of you pursuing this holy living together. And so the second thing that we're going to see is a warning. Our warning is rooted in exemption. It's rooted in exemption, basically thinking that I'm an exemption to the rule. I know that God says this, but I'm an exemption to that. The warning is to not fall prey to that way of thinking. The Bible's an old book, and things have changed since then. I'm an exemption to that. Our our people, is it? No, no. There's a warning here. Scripture provides a lot of positive examples uh, to emulate. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 was, right? All these positive examples of all these amazing figures in the Old Testament that we can emulate. But it also provides negative examples to avoid. And what we're going to see next is a negative example that we are to avoid. Esau is this guy's name. Esau is used as an example of one who preferred the things of this world over the things of God. Look at the rest of verse 15, and then we're going to look at verse 16. 
We'll start at verse 15, the beginning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, notice probably your, your Bible has those three words, root of bitterness in quotations, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He continues, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I pointed out that 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 phrase, root of bitterness, is probably in quotations in your Bible. And the reason why it's in quotes is because he's calling to mind a a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. When I say that, uh, hey guys, watch out, don't don't let any bitterness enter into your hearts. What do you think about? Think about like someone that's crotchety and always in a bad mood. It's like, man, that's just a bitter dude right there. Maybe that's where your mind goes, this root of bitterness. Or maybe you think of someone that's living with resentment or they're unforgiving or just bitter-spirited. That's where my mind goes, but that's not really what the author of Hebrews is getting at. We've got to consider the context, and the context is that he's looking back into the Old Testament. Guys, the author of this book of Hebrews, that guy knows his Bible like crazy, and he's writing to an Old Testament, or to a New Testament Jewish audience that probably knows their Old Testament as well, and so he uses this in quotes, this root of bitterness. It's a warning that is seeped in language from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19, should be on the screen behind me, and this is where he's quoting from. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods of those, of those nations. He says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. See it, right? I mean, it's clear as day. He's quoting this. Then verse 19 says, One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, God's law, blesses himself in his heart, saying, "Eh, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The Christian Standard Bible, CSB, I like the translation that it has, but it says, verse 19, When someone hears the words of this oath, he may bless. This is what the the ESV says. It says, When someone hears the words of the oath, he may consider himself exempt thinking, I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. That phrase has really been etched in my mind this week. When someone hears the words of this oath, their Bibles, he may say, he may consider himself exempt from that thinking and say, I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This is the paraphrase of what this is saying. It's a way of thinking that says, the ways that I can bless myself living my way are more desirable than the ways that God can bless me living his way. The way that I can bless myself living my way is greater and more desirable than the ways that God can bless me by living his way. It's an exemption from the call to holiness. And if this, doesn't, if this is like kind of lofty and not making sense, it's Adam and Eve, y'all. It's Adam and Eve of seeing God's way and it laid out in front of them and them saying, uh, I mean, that God really, God said that, but I mean, is that really what's best for us? Is that what's most desirable? What does it say? They saw the tree that was forbidden to them, and it was desirable to eat from, right? It was desirable. They, they chose their own way. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's Esau, and we're going to look at him now. Esau trading God's future promise for instant gratification. The story of Jacob and Esau, if you know his brother, Jacob. Jacob and Esau. This story is about the blessing of a Messiah. Jesus would eventually be that Messiah. The blessing of a Messiah promised through Abraham's lineage. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son, two sons. Their names were Jacob and Esau. 
the twin boys. All right, so I could go back and read Genesis, but I figured I'd use a more creative way to tell this story. And by the way, um, before I even show you the way that I'm going to tell this story, I apologize, parents, for any questions that may come as a result of these images. So go ahead and use the first one. This is just a, a graphic depiction of the birth of Esau and Jacob. It's just an artist's depiction. Uh, yes, those are Legos. Esau, uh, the Bible tells us, was hairy and red. In fact, his name is, sounds like the word for red. Uh, Edom would be like the word for red. That's where you get the name for the Edomites in the Old Testament that are always, by the way, in conflict with the Israelites. This, this is an old, old thing. So anyway, Esau was born first. They're twin boys, but he was the firstborn. And when he came out, his brother Jacob, his name literally means he takes by the heel, which is what the Lego, I mean, really good artist, artist depiction as he grabs the heel of his older brother, as you can see. So it literally means he takes by the heel, which may sound kind of weird, but in their language, it would be another way of saying the trickster. He, he tricks to try to get ahead. So even from his very birth, Jacob was trying to pull back on his older brother so that he could get ahead. And this is a, a foreshadowing to their relationship. So these guys grew up, and they had a brother relationship, like maybe you have if you have a brother. Uh, Esau grew up, and go to the next image. Esau was a hunter. And so, um, again, just great artist work to probably really capture what he looked like. Um, great hair, right? So <laughs> probably was a little darker than that. Anyway, so Esau was a hunter. Jacob hung out in the tent. And so these guys were very different from one another. And so Esau had the favor of his father. He would go out and hunt. His father loved that. But Jacob had the favor of his mother, Rebekah. Their dad was Isaac. Now remember, Esau was the firstborn. And that meant that he had an inheritance coming to him, which was great. The better word for inheritance, though, would be his birthright. Because he was the firstborn, he had a right of birth to something greater than Jacob had coming to him. The right of the eldest son to have more things from his dad. And usually in their culture, it was twice as much as the one behind them. And by the way, remember, in this family, the birthright was more than just money. It was more than just things. It was the Messiah that would come through their lineage. Big deal. The, the birthright in this family was a huge deal. And so Jacob, the trickster, the one that always just trying to grab the heel and get ahead, he one day saw an opportunity that Esau was returning from a hunt. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Again, real good, probably a good capture of the events here. So he's, he's making a bowl of soup, and it was red soup. That's what we know. Um, the Bible says it was red soup made with lentils. So uh, Jacob, who, he just looks like a schemer, doesn't he? Look at those eyebrows. Um, probably really accurate. So uh, he's He's making some soup, and you see the Esau in the background is coming back from a hunt. His, his dad had, had oftentimes sent him out to, to do hunts. And so he's coming back from a hunt, and then Jacob has this idea. I mean, you can see it in his eyes. He has the idea, right, some sort of a scheme coming where he can be another heel grabber. Go to the next slide. And so this is the scheme. The guy says, hey, look, Esau says, I'm so hungry. He says, I'm so hungry that I could die. Give me some of the red stuff. I want some of that soup. I'm famished. And Jacob says, you can have some of the soup, but first you got to give me your birthright. You give me your birthright and you can have the soup, my man. I will give you all the soup that you want. Again, he's using an opportunity to get ahead of him and trick him. Go to the next slide. 
And so he says, I'm about to die. What good is an inheritance? What good is a birthright to me? And so in his foolishness, he trades the lasting impact and reward of his birthright for the instant gratification and vain attempt of goodness in a bowl of soup. So Jacob says, swear to me. He swears to him, and they make the trade. Now, the passage doesn't condone Jacob's deceit. But for us today, our focus is Esau. Is there another image, or is that it? I think that's it. Oh, yeah, it's him just being all happy. There you go. Jacob's like, I did it. Again, okay, you can please take that down. Thank you. All right, let's come back in. Listen, the passage doesn't condone Jacob's deceit, but for us today, I want to focus on Esau because this is what the author of Hebrews is focusing on. Esau, the passage says back in the book of Genesis 26, it says that after that swap, or in the midst of that swap, it says that Esau viewed his birthright with contempt. It means that he did not value it or care about it, and therefore he sold it. That's why the author of Hebrews uses that word unholy to talk about him. He knew what was coming to him. He knew the promise of a blessed nation that God had promised him, and you know what he thought? Not a big deal. So he squandered it. He looked at it with contempt. So why does the author of Hebrews allude to this example of all examples that he could allude to? One commenter says that Esau gave up the promise in order to ease his physical discomfort. The Hebrew audience might consider giving up the promise in order to ease their social discomfort. Suffering. This root of bitterness that we read about here, it doesn't mean being a bitter person. It means hearing God's call to holy living and considering yourself exempt because you got a better way. That Deuteronomy 29 crowd in question were religious people. We would call them church people, a church community. But they were lost and as godless as they could be. They were enjoying God's salvation from Egypt with no intention of making him their Lord. I would say they were grace abusers. In it for what they get, but not willing to give God themselves. Enjoying God's salvation from sin with no intention of making him Lord. And so the problem then in verse 14, just to recap, it says, and for, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is what, that's not saying that heaven is for people who have mastered what it is to live perfectly. It's saying that heaven is for people who are striving to live for a new master. It's not for people who have prayed a prayer. It's not for people who have walked an aisle and been dunked in water. You can do all of those things and never have made Jesus Lord and therefore cannot claim Jesus as Savior. There's a warning built into the passage. And it's not meant for us to doubt and look back and say, oh no, am I one of those people? Did I, should I, what I? It's for us to look forward. That's what a warning is for, to look forward into tomorrow and say, I'm not going to be one that falls away. I'm not going to be one that walks away. I'm going to be one that perseveres and strives and continues the race of endurance. That root of exemption, it springs up, this passage says, and it defiles. Guys, Satan's strategy is not that you would live like a Satanist. He doesn't want you to live like a Christian. That's enough for him. If you just don't live for the glory of God, he'll settle for that. He'll settle for that. He loves that. He's good with that. If you just want to be a cultural Christian, and sign the dotted line, hey, my, my name is on a Sunday school role, so I'm good. That's like, that's like heaven's role, right? Satan loves a lukewarm Christian by name only. 
It defiles many, it says in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. In other words, this isn't just you. If you walk away, it is a domino effect. It's poisonous is the way that that Deuteronomy 29 passage. It's poison. And poison goes and makes domino effects and hits other people. He says, see to it. Remember what it says just a minute ago in verse uh, 15. See to it that no one fails. See to it. It's a corporate call. Hey, you guys, we're all together. Let's all together see to it that your brothers and sisters around you, they don't fall. See to it. Do it together. It's a corporate call. That's why in Hebrews 3.13, he's already said, encourage one another daily. In Hebrews 10.24, he said, stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10.25, encourage one another. And so now he's saying, be accountable for one another's perseverance, their war against sexual immorality, sin, whatever the like, be part of the journey and the war together. It is not judgmental to tell your brother or sister in Christ that they aren't exempt from the calling. That's not judgmental. That's loving. It's not judgmental to be in each other's business. See to it. Don't ignore it. Say, hey, well, it's it's not my life, so I'm just going to... How unloving is that? When they're falling, and you're just saying, hey, you know, live and let live, you know what I'm saying? And on the other side, I mean shoe on the other foot. It's not judgmental for your brother or sister in Christ to tell you that you aren't exempt from the calling. A fool receives a loving rebuke. They love you, man. They're not trying to put you in a corner. They're trying to restore you and love you. Receive that word of correction for what it is. It's not judgmental. It's loving. It's a warning. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. The third thing, is our reminder, rooted in Christ. That's our reminder, that we are to be rooted in Jesus above all else. Our reminder to be rooted in Christ. You know, when Isaac neared the end of his life, he was blind. It's an important detail. He was blind. He told his son Esau that he wanted to bless him. Again, he sees Esau as the firstborn, probably ignorant of this event with the pot, right? Uh, the, uh, the soup and all that stuff. So he's probably ignorant of that. And so he tells Esau, hey man, it's, it's time for me to bless you. Go out and hunt and, and, and bring home this meal. Come bring it to me and then I will bless you and give you the blessing that is due to you as the firstborn. In ancient times, patriarchal fatherly blessings included encouragement and oftentimes prophetic words about the future. And this was a big one. It was a really big deal. And for us, it's like a blessing, a birthright. What's the big deal about that? It could not be more big to these guys. I mean, it's a huge deal for this guy to receive his birthright as the firstborn. So he goes and does what his dad says. Now, long story short, Jacob, if you don't know the story, Jacob, once again, the heel grabber, the trickster, the furrowed eyebrows, Jacob disguises himself as his brother. Again, his dad is blind, and so he disguises himself. He makes him have his scent, and he tries to look and feel like him and goes up to his father, and he, he dupes his blind dad, Isaac, and receives Isaac's blessing. Huge deal, because the blessing is irrevocable. Once it's given, you can't take it back. And he tricks his dad and steals the blessing due to the firstborn. It's sort of this coming to fruition of the situation with the soup. That was sort of symbolic, but it came to reality because he did sell his birthright, and so Jacob manipulated him. Isaac sold that birthright for a bowl of soup. Verse 17 then talks about it. It says, For you know that afterward... 
when he, that's Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. By the way, real quick, when it says, though he sought it with tears, contextually, it doesn't sound like he's saying sought repentance with tears. And we'll see that in a second. Instead, he's seeking the blessing with tears. He's seeking the, the, the inheritance. He's seeking the birthright with tears, and he's not going to receive it because it's too late. The NIV says, even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And so his dad, Isaac, horrified. When he saw that he was manipulated, he gave the birthright to the wrong kid. He was horrified. Esau was crushed. He was filled with bitterness, and he vowed to kill his brother. Esau stands as an example of someone who regrets what he has done but does not truly repent of his wrongdoing. He simply regrets that he has lost his birthright and his blessing as the firstborn. One commenter says, it was his loss, not his sin, that he mourned. It was his loss, not his sin, that he mourned. We know, again, he, he wanted to kill his brother. It's not a heart change. He mourned the loss not his sin. It's sort of the way that we would say the phrase, you're not sorry, you're just sorry you got caught. We know that there's a difference between genuine repentant remorse and just regretful remorse because you didn't get what you wanted or you were kept from what you wanted. Guys, regret and repentance are different. And if you're a parent, you know that is so true. Regret and repentance are different. And God is our parent, our father. God never rejects true repentance, never but he has no interest in empty regret. He never rejects a repentant heart. I mean, how many times in God's word do you read, I don't want sacrifices, I want a contrite, I want a repentant heart, I want a repentant heart, I want a repentant heart. God always receives a truly repentant heart. He has no business wanting, though, empty regret. True repentance requires hatred of sin and striving for holiness. Tears alone do not signal true repentance. And that's what the author is saying. He isn't saying that God doesn't allow people to repent even if they wish to. His point is that the time had passed when Esau could repent. And he doesn't want the same to happen to the readers. Because repentance isn't available forever. Time may run out in receiving the grace of God. One day, for everyone in this room, your time will run out. Your time will run out. And when that clock expires, you will look back at your life and see, did I surrender my life to Jesus or did I not? Was there just grieving over sin and remorseful, I got caught, here's the punishment? Or is there true repentance of heart? What are you rooted in? Are you rooted in regret over sin with no change of heart? Or are you rooted in repentance from sin and faith in Christ? You know when Jesus arrived on the scene, Early in the book of Mark in the gospel, he came and he said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. Repent and believe. Pretty short and simple, right? Repent and believe. Notice that those two things must go together. A turning from sin, but ultimately belief in the only one that can put it to death. That's the story of the gospel, is that Jesus stepped in our place and bore the wrath and the punishment that we could receive grace. I was talking through baptism recently with a young child 
and um, this, this child was, was really just not picking up on what I was putting down. And so I was thinking, man, how can I creatively explain the gospel um, to a child? I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing because every child is very different and they have different levels of understanding. But I knew that this child uh, liked soccer and played soccer. And so I was thinking, and I'm not very good at this. This was God-given, I assure you. But I thought about soccer and I was like, well, penalty is in soccer and they have substitutions in soccer. And I thought about this big fancy theological term that is penal substitution. Penal for penalty and substitution, which is pretty self-evident. And so I just wrote those words on a sheet of paper and I said, in soccer, what's a penalty? She said, well, somebody does a bad thing and so they get penalized for it and that person may get a free kick or whatever. I said, here's the thing, we have sin and there's a penalty for that. There's consequences for that. If it's hockey, you gotta go to the penalty box. There's a punishment. We have a punishment because that's what we are. We are sinners. We have punishment that is coming in our direction. The wages of sin is death. I talked about it. I said, what's a substitution in soccer? She said, so one person comes out and the other person goes in. I said, bingo. I said, you got a penalty on your head. It's death. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus went in your place. He took the penalty so that you could go free. That's the good news of the gospel. And guys, we cannot be rooted in mere remorse and regret. We must be rooted in faith in Christ who has taken the penalty as our substitute. The message is now, strive. Don't let comforts of the world lure you into choosing them instead of Christ. That's what happened to Esau, trading salvation for a bowl of soup. And you think, what's the connection here? Guys, if you don't see it already, You are plagued and surrounded by a minefield in this world that wants you to trade glory and trade obedience and trade walking with Jesus for the vain pleasures of this world, man. Your phone is filled with saying, look at these pleasures, look at these pleasures. No, find it here, find value here. But God says, crucify it all and walk with Jesus. Don't be duped by the comforts of this world choosing them instead of the reward. We have been given something beautiful and lasting in the gospel. Don't forsake it for the comforts and joys and acceptance of the perishing of the present evil age. By show of hands, have you ever heard the story of the the emperor's new clothes? Raise your hand if if you know that story, the emperor's new clothes. You guys are smarter than me, man. Goodness. This one was new to me uh, just a few months ago. It's a Danish folk tale, and you've probably heard this told a few different ways. So the tale goes like this. Uh, there is this emperor. It's a fictitious tale, but it's this emperor who loved the best and nicest of clothes. And so what he would do is every day he would parade around the capital city every day to be seen and admired by his people, his subjects. Well, one day there are these two swindlers that came on the scene, and they said, oh, we see an opportunity here. We see an opportunity to manipulate and trick the emperor and get something out of it. And so what these two swindlers did is they posed as weavers that could make clothes and make fabric. They, we- they said that we weave the finest feathery light outfit and king, we can do it for you. In fact, it's not just feathery light and wonderful, it's a magic outfit made of wonderful fabric. And this outfit is magical because it is invisible to anyone who is a foolish or incompetent person. Anybody that's a fool, anybody that's incompetent, it's gonna be invisible to them. That's how wonderful and magical it is. And so they said that they would make it for the emperor, so long as the emperor would fund their work and it would be very expensive. You see the trickery coming. 
So the emperor hires them because he wants so badly to look fancy and nice. And so they set up a station in the palace basement. And so they set up these workstations with invisible work and invisible progress that's happening. They sat in these seats and they started doing their arms as if they were working with some invisible fabric. And so anybody that looks at them, they see that they're working with some invisible fabric. And so the emperor sends his lead security officer and the lead security officer, he says, go and see the, the product and, and, and tell me how it looks. And so he goes into the basement, he looks and he's thinking, I'm a fool. I don't see it. I'm incompetent. But the the emperor can't know that I'm incompetent or else I'll get fired or worse. So he goes back to the king and says, wow, unlike anything I've ever seen, you're not going to believe it. The king says, or the emperor says, great, okay, awesome. Some time goes by and he sends his second command down there to see the progress. Again, he sees it and says, I can't be a fool and be incompetent. I must pretend that I see something. He comes back to the emperor and says, <laughs> I mean, amazing. Like, he, he was right. Unbelievable. You're not going to believe what you see when you get this outfit on. And finally, the emperor sees it himself. After the swindlers have finished, they reveal the clothes to the emperor. The emperor, of course, doesn't see anything. But what does he say? Wow. Beautiful fabric. How did you do this? It is truly magical. I can't wait for people to see. And so he, the next day, decides that he's going to parade around the city to be seen and admired by the people. And the, the swindlers, they, they fit him with it. And he's looking in the mirror in his underwear. And he just doesn't, he doesn't, he plays along with the, the sham because he's afraid of being seen as a fool, as incompetent. So the people had heard of the emperor's magic clothes, his new clothes, invisible to anyone that was a fool. Afraid of what their peers would say, when the emperor paraded on the city, what do you think they did? Whoa, look at the new digs. Wow, what a wardrobe. But then the story goes that a small child, too young to understand social expectations, shouted, but he's naked. The emperor's naked. The crowd fell silent. And slowly, people started to chatter and realized the truth, and that's that the emperor's new clothes were nothing but an illusion. They were afraid to speak the truth for fear of social consequences. They played along with the mass delusion. And they knew it, everyone knew it, but their fear of looking foolish kept them silent. They played along, they lived by lies, because everyone else went along. Everyone else said, it's normal. And to protect their own skin, they said it's normal too. It's Pride Month. When all the people and the brands tell you that totally twisting and manipulating God's design for sexuality and gender is wrong, and that this is the right way, and that all these generations of people before us got it wrong, and we're the smart ones who got it right. People and brands even, I mean, so many brands, go look at Facebook or Twitter, they change their logos to be rainbow logos, and they're afraid to speak the truth due to being canceled or mocked, or so instead they just play along with the delusion. Something that professing Christians have approached, and it's not just the world, by the way, Professing Christians have said, yeah, I could see it. I don't want to be unloving. 
That is normal. That is the right way. But something professing Christians have approached with decisive conviction for 2,000 years is now collapsing under the, the desire to be accepted by the culture. What would have been unimaginable even 15 years ago, a binary of male and human beings that even lizards understand, every human civilization since the dawn of mankind universally and scientifically understood, it's a delusion now. Hear me say this. Pride Month, by the way, it's year-round. Pride Month and beyond is fueled by the fear of man. It is fueled by the fear of man because everybody in their right mind, that's a key part, right? In their right mind knows that this is delusional. And koalas and pandas and lizards, they all know the truth. And the smartest people created in God's image are falling for the delusion. And I'm not saying it's not heartbreaking. And I'll, I'll get there in a second. Corporations flow downstream of the culture. They play along with the delusion because they don't want to be canceled by the culture. Guys, we must be willing to be canceled by the culture to be followers of Jesus. We must be. We cannot be people that are afraid to speak the truth due to social consequences, playing along with mass delusion. And this whole movement is fueled by the fact that, and the myth, that the most important thing in your life is personal happiness. Guys, personal happiness is not the fabric of your life. It's not the key to individual flourishing, selling your inheritance for a meal. Esau bought that myth and said, no, this meal is the most important thing in life. You know what the most important thing in life was? Being faithful. Trusting God in the midst of his difficulty. There is greater comfort than the one this world can provide. There's greater peace than the one that this world can provide. There's greater belonging than the one that this world can provide. There's greater fulfillment than the one that this world can provide. This world, the world will embrace you so long as you measure up to their standard. But Christ will embrace you so long as you acknowledge that you could never measure up. But trust that he did for you that you may love and live for him. And that's not bigotry. That's not hate. Because I want you to hear the next thing I say. The LGBTQ people group. We must love them. Man, we must love them. The same way that you needed to be loved by God and people before you walked with Jesus. We must love them and embrace them but we must not affirm them. There is no place that I'd rather a gay, lesbian, transsexual person be than right here hearing me say this, that your identity is not tied to your sexuality. Your identity is tied to the fact that God created you in his image, that God loves you, that we love you, and God sent Jesus to die for your wrongs. He bore the penalty so that you could be free from it. Thank Jesus. Intimacy with another human being will not bring you peace and fulfillment. Mutilation of your God-given body parts will not bring you peace and fulfillment. Look at the statistics. 
Embrace of the culture will not bring you peace and fulfillment. Only the embrace of God offers true and lasting peace and fulfillment. But guys, we must love them, but we must not affirm them. There will always be an emperor wearing new clothes and a culture afraid to speak the truth for fear of social consequences, playing along with the mass delusion, but we can't. Don't buy the delusion. Hold the line. Don't trade your eternal reward of the presence of God for the instant gratification of the praise of your peers. We've got a greater striving, a greater pursuit. It's holiness. And we, should, we, should, we must run this race with a holy heart. And when you fail, remember who catches you and puts you back on, his, on your feet. It is our loving Savior, Jesus the Christ.